Welcome to episode two of Dr. Scott's Health and Wellness Corner, a podcast where you can learn how to be the best you that you can be. We're your hosts, Anissa Austin and Sabina Nagas. In today's episode, we will be discussing diversity in sport with Dr. Letitia Forster Scott and our special guest, Dr. Robert Owen. Dr. Scott is the owner of Fusion Fit and Well and a full-time college professor currently at Rutgers University in the Department of Kinesiology and Health. Courses she has taught cover the range of health, fitness, sports sociology, exercise and sports psychology, motor learning, sports modules, and curriculum and instruction in physical education. Dr. Robert Owens is an adjunct professor of sports psychology at the University of Western State. He is currently on the editorial board for case studies in sport and exercise psychology, chair of the diversity committee through the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, and a council member for the Council for Wellness, continuing education through the National Wellness Institute. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Owens. Um, so we want to talk about what has been a challenge with overcoming diversity in the field of sports and sports psychology, and what steps are being taken to improve it? Okay, so the first part of that question is what has been like a challenge for me in the uh, association for, I mean, excuse me, just in terms of like sports psychology? Yes. Yeah, so sure. maybe I'll, I'll, I'll address that question first. Well, uh, just to give you a little bit of background, I've been the chair of the diversity committee for the Association for Applied Sports Psychology for almost three years. So I'll be ending my term uh, this this November. And so it's, you know, I, I enjoyed being the chair of the diversity committee, uh, but there were also, there, there were a lot of opportunities for me as well as a lot of challenges. Uh, one of the challenges um we we're talking about diversity, at least from an organizational standpoint and working with uh, ASP, which is Association for Applied Sports Psychology, is how do we move the organization from being uh, an act, a reactive organization in terms of diversity management to an organization that's more proactive. So that was my biggest hurdle and in, in, uh, for the past three years in working with the association. And so the second part of your question and how do I kind of deal with that? One of the things I was able to do working with the committee is that we created a diversity course to help um, members of the association learn more about diversity and inclusion and become more self-reflective in their applied sports psychology practice. For example, um, one of the things that we talk about in that course is like microaggressions. You, pro you probably have heard, heard of that term. I'm sure Dr. Borcher Scott has like talked about it in, uh, in her classes. And so, and when I'm talking about microaggressions, it's basically the types of, um, well, there's a couple of different ways to look at it, right? So microaggressions, they can be microvalidations where you invalidate a person of color's experience. Uh, for example, I used to, teach fitness classes at a couple of gyms in the Greensboro, North Carolina area where I reside. And as one of the few fitness instructors of color, you know, I would come up against a lot of these microaggressions from members of the gym who would say, oh, can you change your music? You play too much of this type of music. Um, so, um, so it's important for us as applied sports psychology professionals to recognize that people of marginalized identities are going to face uh, these microaggressions when they're doing their work, particularly athletes, uh, when we're working with athletes and understanding their experiences um, 
the microaggressions that they might um, experience from their coaches, for example. So I'll jump in here. Um, first, mm -hmm. I would like to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know for myself as a, um, a member of AS that um, I started with the organization as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And um, I was... Um, I was the one who started the SIG for race and ethnicity in sport for ASS. And we were trying to address these issues, you know, at that time. And I do recall coming up against some, some resistance. Now, fast forward some years later, and we have the uh, diversity committee, and now we have a uh, requirement in order to become a certified mental health um, consultant you need to have this, um, some training or course in, in diversity. So I'm glad that we are moving in that, in that direction. Um, my concern now is how do we move it into more of an applied practice wherein it's not just something that, um, academics sit around and talk about, but we actually get involved in the nitty gritty in, in addressing some of the systemic issues that contribute to some of the problems that we see in a profession, um, not just with um, psychologists and consultants who work in sport, but also when we're talking about the experiences of athletes and some of the things that they deal with on a daily or ongoing basis, um, especially when we're talking about athletes who may not have the um, the words or know how to describe what they're dealing with when they're faced with some of these microaggressions that you you previously mentioned. Um, and then how is that impacting their experience, not only on the field or in their sport, but also in the classroom, if you're talking about uh, student athletes. And then in reference to fitness, I've been in fitness for over 30 years. And it's something that I think also needs to be addressed in that area as well. So I can completely relate to what you're saying relative to music choices, relative to the type of classes that are put on um, schedules when um, fitness centers have classes, um, to the type of um, styles that the different instructors may have or specialty areas. So this is something that is definitely um, that something that needs to be addressed, not only in sport, but also in fitness as well. So I appreciate, you know, what what you're talking about and the different things that, um, you know, we're trying to deal with. Really, uh, it, it turns out to be, it's a lot of work. It's not something that can happen, um, you know, in a vacuum or just in the classroom, but it's something that you have to actively go out there and try and, and to address these issues. So I'm just wondering, um, what would you recommend to someone who is interested in sports psychology or exercise psychology? Um, what would be some advice you would give to someone um, in terms of how to deal with some of these issues? Because oftentimes, um, you know, we have students of color who are at universities who are studying this um, and they're usually in very small number. I know for me, I was often um, the only one or one of very few. So I'm just wondering what type of advice you would, you would give. Uh, that's, that's a great uh, question. Uh, one of the things, uh, just to put this a little bit 
more into context. Uh, I did some work. My first job in higher education over a little over 20 years ago was at a small Quaker college here in Greensboro, North Carolina. And part of my job was basically I was part multicultural affairs and part student activities. And under my multicultural affairs piece, I worked with uh, students of color and particularly student athletes of color. We were developing a mentorship program for our um, um, student athletes of color. And during that period of time, I was still in my late 20s. Um, I didn't know. So I was only a couple of years older than most of the students that I was working with. And I really didn't have a lot of experience dealing other than going to college myself, which I went to Temple. Temple's a little bit more diverse than the college I was working at. Um, I didn't have a lot of experience in dealing with the issues. And so a lot of it for me at the time was like listening to what my athletes were saying in terms of the problems that they were experiencing, not only on the field, I particularly worked with football at the time, uh, football players. And so not only listening to their stories about problems that they were experiencing on the field, but also problems that they were experiencing in the classroom. Fast forward now, um, 20 years later, I'm actually back at that, uh, doing consulting work for, for that college. And one of the things that I've noticed is that not a lot of things have changed. So in my consulting capacity, I've actually been working a lot with the football team again, mostly men of color on the, uh, on the football team. And so one of the things I've kind of learned in this 20 year span is basically, uh, goes to what you were saying about empowering the athletes themselves and then advocating for them. So what I mean by empowering the athletes, it was important for me having worked in higher ed for so long to help explain kind of how the university works or how colleges work or the types of barriers that might be put in their way and ways that they may try to overcome those barriers. Because if you are a student for the first time at a university, you know, you don't necessarily understand all the bureaucracy and how things work. Um, the second thing that I, I uh, would do and I have done is advocate for the athletes themselves. So I was working with the uh, director of the counseling clinic at, at this at this Quaker College, and one of the I was working with a particular athlete, and one of the, one day. You know, I get this call saying, oh, um, Rob, can you come in? We want you to meet with this particular athlete. He's been experiencing some issues and we want you to talk to him. And so I get there and the athlete arrives like 30 minutes later just to tell me that he's been released from the team. They gave me no prior knowledge that that was going to happen. They had just told the athlete a half an hour before and then decided to send him over to me. Wow. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I worked with the athlete. And then after that particular meeting, and I had a future sessions with the athlete too. Unfortunately, COVID is kind of uh, taking that particular relationship away at the time, uh, at this time. But one of the things I did, I immediately met with the director of the, of the clinic and said to him, I said, we need to do something about this because you're not helping these athletes or not it wasn't him i said we need to kind of work with the uh with the ad with the athletics director because i don't think it's um appropriate to engage in that type of behavior 
because if I was thinking that if I had been the athlete myself coming over to meet um, with this person, it's like, what does this person know? So I made it very clear to the athlete that I was surprised that I had no idea that he was being released from the team and that, you know, that I would work with him. And I would, and I also let him know that I would advocate for him. I, and I also explored a lot of the uh, issues that he had faced working with the coaches. So he mentioned a number of, of microaggressions. The coaches would ignore him in the cafeteria. So he would be sitting with the other athletes in the cafeteria and they would talk to everyone else but him, for example. Mm -hmm. So a big part of it for me was making sure that um, I was able to help the athlete with his self-care. I was able to help, help the athlete develop routines now that he was no longer um, on the football team, helping the athlete to uh, to identify other uh, support at the university. So one of his academic advisors was a very strong support system for him. But again, I think the biggest thing is like, as practitioners, we need to be able to have those uncomfortable conversations and not just assume that, what, that, that when something like that happens, that it's important for us to do something about it, to speak out. Otherwise, we just become part of a system of oppression. Right. And, and I think you brought up some key issues relative to relationship building. I know some of the things that I've had to focus on when working with athletes is teaching them how to advocate for themselves outside of uh, the sport, um, particularly with with teachers or faculty and, you know, other administrators that may be a part of the school. Um, and then I think the other thing, too, is this idea of grounding and, and teaching athletes how to deal with, with anxiety and some of those things that create the anxiety. And I know um, it's been a concern um, relative to the mental health of athletes, particularly now in dealing with COVID and how many of them are stripped away right now from their support systems at the colleges or universities, or even at the high school level, where you know certain services that they would normally have access to or ease of access to, now suddenly they don't. And what can cre create more anxiety is not knowing how or when things are going to return to so-called normal. And, and then what does that look like? Um, one of the things that I am happy to see is that more and more colleges and universities and also professional sport um, are open to the idea of hiring full-time um, mental health consultants to deal specifically with the issues of athletes. So I'm happy to see that mm -hmm. on, but all is not created equal. So um, I'm also concerned that um, some colleges and universities have been slow to turn that corner. And then also whether or not once someone is there, um, oftentimes it can be one individual. And then whether or not this one individual has the capacity or the, the uh, support to help all athletes and not just focus on, you know, one or two teams. Oftentimes it is the football team um, that seems to get um, a lot of these uh, types of resources, but then we also have athletes who are on other sport teams who oftentimes feel like they don't get the same type of 
um, resources as the uh, football team, particularly in those um, football bowl schools or D1 schools that have really large programs. So I think that um, having some type of, you know, the same way they have to sit through orientations um, when they first come into the system, um, having uh, mental health practitioners, professionals there that specifically deal with their issues and introducing introducing that to them early on, I think would be um, something that is really, really um, beneficial to them. But then having, you know, active programming where it's part of the culture of the sport and not just something that's left to the side. So I think that's important. Um, and hopefully we can move, move in that direction. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned how your relationship with this particular athlete was um, impacted because of COVID. So I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, where do we go from here um, in relationship to, to sport? That, that, that's a really good question because one of the things, because my my uh, relationship with all these athletes were impacted negatively from COVID and the uh, the center, at, at, at the name of the college is called Guilford College, and the center there uh, did not really want to engage in any type of telehealth because they mm-hmm. didn't have, the staff didn't have a lot of experience with uh, you know telehealth practices, so I could see I and mean, I could understand why they would be very reserved in trying to, to do that. Kind of know there's issues related to liability, um, and so I think one of the things that we can do as practitioners, and that what we should do, given the fact that this is 2020, is that we need to be able to expand our reach, and in order to expand our reach, we need to use these types of digital communication technologies in order to continue to work with athletes when we are in situations like this, when there is a, a crisis. Because I'm, like for example, I'm at UNC Greensboro where I work full time. Uh, I facilitate a uh, group on trauma on Tuesday evenings. And so we were very intentional that once COVID hit, we talked to the members of that particular group and said, do you want to continue online? And at first, actually, the group participants were a little hesitant to even do that because they didn't have experience doing it. And frankly, I didn't have a lot of experience and neither did my uh, co-facilitator, but we decided to give it a try and it's worked out very well for those particular students. So I think it's important for practitioners to you know, kind of up their game a little bit and not be afraid of technology and, you know, advocate for using these technologies and our uh, practices when working with, with athletes or even working with health and wellness. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are stuck at home and, you know, they're looking for things to do in order to stay well. They want to engage in physical activity. They may need some uh, social support from an outsider. They may need an outsider a coach or a consultant to help them with their accountability um, during this time of crisis. So again, I think um, it's important for us to leverage technology going forward. If that's anything that we've learned from this particular pandemic, we need to be able to leverage technology um, in better ways. Yes, I think um, that's something that's definitely going to come out of this this crisis is how to better utilize 
technology, I think if if I if I had to bet on it, um, I think the students and student athletes who were able to maintain some type of connection throughout all of this are going to be the ones who recover faster and get back into as much of a normal routine as possible going forward. Um, I think um, for many of us, um, you know, being in these isolated situations, um, I think we're probably going to be looking at some type of PTSD. Um, we're probably going to be looking at people having a hard time getting back to um, whatever their routine was before all of this happened. Um, and I think that telehealth and virtual outreach is important at this time. And, you know, I commend anyone who took the leap to jump out there and, 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 and do it because it, it's pretty scary if it's something that you're not accustomed to doing. Um, even in terms of fitness, um, I've missed my clients. Um, I taught, I think my last fitness class face-to-face, -face, it was a Sunday morning class. And I went in thinking, you know what? There probably won't be too many people there because at that point, things were getting a little scary, so to speak, when um, they started shutting things down here in New Jersey. And when I got there, it was packed and I was surprised, but I was also happy. But it also said something to me that people were trying, I think, hold on to as much normalcy as possible. But once the decision was made that all of the um, fitness clubs had to close, I haven't had any contact with them. And I know for me, I've been thinking about them. And because it's not this is um, a club that I was working for. It's not my particular business. I'm limited in terms of the outreach that I can offer. Um, but I would imagine that for many of them who are out of their routines, um, this has been a difficult period. And we've seen this uptick for sure in the fitness industry where people are jumping on and doing virtual classes. I'll actually be doing mine um, beginning this week. Um, and I'm looking forward to it and I'm hoping to reconnect and hoping that, um, you know, some of my clients who are out there will jump on and they'll see that I'm, I'm offering this because I think it matters. I think it's going to be the difference between people who dealt more successfully during this time period versus those who may have struggled and probably experienced more anxiety. Um, I think maintaining that connection as much as possible. And I think telehealth, um, is a key component there. And I think telehealth is something that more and more um, sports site consultants are going to need to consider as part of their normal offerings. Um, and especially if you're dealing with um, people when they're traveling, and I, I think it'd be something that could be uh, rather useful. Um, and I think the other thing you mentioned that's interesting is trauma, this idea of trauma and how trauma impacts us and the idea of um, how do we address it, you know, because we can't just ignore it. Um, but any other thoughts on that relative to trauma and how we move forward from here? Yeah, I think um, and what, what was really interesting about the group, my the Tuesday evening group, is that even though the group was, our focus was on trauma, 
once COVID hit and all classes went online, it, you know, the students became even more traumatized, partly because some of their uh, instructors really didn't know how to move their courses online. They made the courses a little bit more difficult. And so I could even, and I would I'll think about my student athletes thinking like, oh, I wonder how they're doing in terms of their coursework now that it's been moved online because the students in my trauma group w were complaining about that, you know, they were not able to keep up with their, with their coursework because some of their instructors were kind of almost like re-traumatizing them in, in some ways. But to, uh, uh, so we had to work through that. We've actually been working through that for the past couple of weeks. And I think we're kind of back to just talking about their trauma in general. But mm -hmm. I think, yeah, so one of the things I think of working, um, since I work primarily with, with college students and thinking through trauma, it's important for, I think, practitioners not to minimize their trauma. They, are, for example, you'll have students who had to leave campus um, they had to go live in places where it may not be with their with their primary family, or they might be in a situation where they didn't want to to go home, uh, and not minimizing mm -hmm. their experiences. And kind of it's important for us as practitioners to kind of listen and to help them um, move through the different types of traumas that they might might experience when they're going back to the communities. So if I had students that would I had to move back to rural communities. Uh, with family members they didn't necessarily get along with, uh, but mm -hmm. uh, or that they were, had to move back in where there would be multiple relatives in one house, uh, or they had to go back home to a, an environment where they felt like that they might fall back into some um, behaviors that they didn't want to fall back into. You know, they were able to go to college to get away from some uh, people who had negatively influenced them in the past, and they were afraid that they would fall back into into those types of crowds and systems. And so I think just like listening to students, validating their experiences uh, and, you know, just paying attention uh, in, a, in a way that's very mindful. So one of the things I talk about with students uh, is this whole notion of mindfulness and, and like, you know, we're, we're, we live in a time where we are resilient. I tell that to my students, I tell that particularly to my students of color because some of them feel like, okay, well, I'm not sure if, if I can like deal with this. Maybe I should drop out. Maybe I should do this. And I said, no, it's like, you know what? If I was able to do it, you can do it too. And so, and you know, so it's, I think it's, you know, dealing with trauma with students, just recognizing what types of trauma they experience, that they're experiencing. Also recognizing the cumulative effects of trauma is important. Because if the student experienced a recent trauma, you know, exploring with them uh, past traumas that they might have experienced that might have accumulated to make this uh, uh, latest version of trauma even more significant. Uh, so it's important, I think, for practitioners to consider all of these things. We talk about microaggressions. I also talk about micro traumas. You know, just these small things can build yes. up to, you know, really affect people affect students and student athletes in very negative ways. They might seem to be very small things, but those small things accumulate. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think I think that's very true. Um, and a lot of what you said relative to students and student athletes having to go back to situations that 
um, college may have provided them an opportunity to get away from. And now suddenly they're back in those situations. Um, and, you know, micro traumas, you know, something as simple as, you know, we don't know how many are dealing with things like um, domestic violence, food insecurity, um, you know, any number of things, especially now where you have people losing jobs and not being able to pay their bills and all of these things are going to make a difference. And then how does this play out now when, um, you know, it's safe to return back to campus and then you have students and student athletes coming back to campus and some of them may be coming back with feelings of guilt um, because they're leaving whatever situation behind. And then how do you deal with that? And then you're also dealing with students who are like, you know what, I'm just getting by and um, perhaps I'm not doing the best work I can do at this time, but I'm doing as much as necessary so that I can at least keep my head, you know, stay above water, so to speak. So I think these are all things that are going to be interesting um, to deal with once we do return. Um, and I hope that um, practitioners and sports psychology and counselors in our school systems recognize this and also recognize that we have athletes um, who are, you know, who missed out on a season or who missed out on, um, you know, a championship or their senior year and all of the things that go along with that. So um, I think there's a lot to unpack here and we're, we're limited to what we can do. Um, and I, I really appreciate you coming on and having this discussion with us. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have any any further any further thoughts on closing. Uh, well, first, I would like to say thank you for having me. This has been actually a great experience. I don't think that you and I have actually had a conversation before. So having this conversation has been a really enlightening uh, and a positive experience for me. And th thank you, Anissa and Sylvania, too, for um, hosting me today. I would just like to leave with uh, just a closing thought of as practitioners, it's important that we continue, continue, continue to advocate for our clients. One of the things that I uh, was able to do with the diversity committee was to create a propose a second committee related to diversity and inclusion uh, for uh, ASP. So we just created a advocacy committee. They just reached out to members of ASP to, to become members of that committee. So the inaugural committee uh, members have been selected. And I'm really hoping that this committee uh, will help or provide recommendations for practitioners on how to best advocate for our clients, particularly not just in this current crisis that we're in, but as you mentioned, going forward, when um, when students, for example, student athletes do return to campus, you know, how can we, you know, help them kind of transition back into um, a life after COVID-19. Okay, thank yes. you both so much for your insight into the sport field. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in with us on Dr. Scott's Health and Wellness Corner. We really enjoyed sitting down with um, Dr. Owens and Dr. Scott. Thank you guys again. We also hope to see you at our live webinar coming soon. And don't forget to stay tuned for more content by following us on Instagram at Dr. L. F. Scott and on Facebook, Fusion Fit and Well. Thank you guys again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And everyone have a great day.